0: Coco Seco! I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is, well, short, and here's the reason why. Episode 134 ushers in a new concept for our podcast series, the concept of a bonus episode. You see, as we've stated in the past, the JFK assassination materials are vast, and adding ancillary topics such as Cuba and its history tends to make the body of work that we're covering even more enormous. The analogy I've used in past episodes is that this journey, and sometimes this wander, is like being on a lake with thousands of fingers and coves. It's both easy and tempting and sometimes downright interesting to get lost in the myriad of available details, of available fingers and coves. But the truth is that some folks like that kind of wander, and and then there are just some folks that have less interest in some of the ancillary facts. It just may not be that interesting to some. For instance, to hear about the history of Cuba and when Columbus first set foot on the island. I get it. So, while I'm still going to do the occasional episodes on these ancillary topics, I'm now going to label them as bonus episodes. Episodes related to topics that are not related to the assassination itself, at least not directly, but which cover material that gives the reader greater exposure and understanding of the culture and the environment that was present during that period in our country's history. Having better context always makes it easier for all of us to absorb the rest of the details of the assassination analysis. So today's episode, 134, is a bonus episode, the first of many that'll come in the series and be labeled that way going forward. Today's episode is a short one that arose out of a simple question that was posed to me by someone who had listened to the podcast episodes that I've published thus far on Cuba— and particularly the last couple that dealt with Fidel Castro more directly. Look, I hate to keep harping on it, but I'm going to do it. The idea of a bonus episode is simple. It's an episode that's not essential to the story of the assassination or the continuity of my storytelling overall. That is, my storytelling about the assassination. And therefore, you can skip it, if you like, with no real consequence. Now... I'm not asking you to skip any of my episodes, including the bonus episodes. I think it's best if you listen to all of them. I'm just saying. And for those of you who are all in, well, it's just another wander that you'll want to go on with me, regardless. Simply put, the question that's become the subject of today's episode was this, as it was posed to me. You described Fidel Castro's father, Angel Castro, as Someone who emigrated from Spain, obviously made something of himself and would be considered a wealthy Cuban. So, with Fidel growing up in that type of environment, a sort of bourgeois exposure, how did Fidel lean so left? That type of background is not necessarily where radicals come from. How well off was his family? And what was his father really like? And how much of an influence was he on Fidel? What type of man really was his father? Can you provide us with more details on Angel Castro? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that request. And the truth is, all of these are solid questions. Unfortunately, there's only so much room for content in a 30 to 40 minute episode. So ancillary details like these are the first to go by the wayside. So today, this prologue is probably longer than the bonus episode itself. But the bottom line is that you're going to hear a more detailed description of Angel Castro. And the topic is dealt with well by the award-winning New York Times reporter and author, Tad Cezolk, a man who wrote one of the true definitive works on Castro, and one that was simply entitled Fidel. So today we will simply read a few relevant pages from that wonderful biography as narrative for our episode. It won't explain why Castro pivoted toward Marxist Leninist thoughts and theories, but it will shed light on who Angel Castro was. Angel Castro was a hard working man. If he'd been in the United States, he surely would have been labeled a bit of Anne Horatio Alger's story. A rags to riches tale that occurred classically through hard work and toil, and more often is seen in a capitalist system of economy. While there was success, That toil did not leave excessive amounts of time for his children, and Fidel was probably closer to his mother than to his father at the end of the day. It probably didn't help Fidel or his father build a father and son bond when he was sent to study at the Jesuit schools, even more time cloistered away from his family. I don't have the answer to the question of the why, but I do have the answers to the question of who. So today, again, it's just a bonus episode to learn a little bit more about Angel Castro. That may help you better understand how Castro got to where he did. Or like me, and the person who originally posed the question to me, it may just serve to confuse you even more. Because Castro didn't follow in his father's footsteps, for sure. And the economic model, despite the spoils that it brought to his father, was apparently one that Fidel did not like. So, the moral of the story is that you never know when it comes to the social, moral, and political matriculation of a human being. You just never know. It's a complex incubation for some. So, without further ado, let's listen to bonus episode 134 of JFK The Enduring Secret. You know, it's somewhat hard to believe the amount of American investment that accumulated over the years in Cuba, that is, before the Revolution. Foreign banks controlled about 80% of the sugar production in 1920. American companies gained monopolies in all the Cuban railroads, the electric power supplies, and telephones. And Cuban deposits in the United States-owned banks on the island soared from 20% in 1920 to 69 percent in 1921, as most Cuban banks disappeared because they could not compete with the political power and resources of Yankee bankers. Cuba's president in 1926 was Gerardo Machado y Morales, an American-supported friend of big business. Washington forced him out years later, however, when he turned into a despotic dictator and the country's economic stability was threatened by the rising rebellion against him. Sound familiar? He was as corrupt as his predecessors, who ran the pseudo republic in cahoots with the better classes of Cuban society at that moment. But among the new Cuban generation, a new anti American nationalism was beginning to develop. Not only were the Cubans saddled with the Platt Amendment and the United States economic hegemony, but they could also watch American military interventions by the U.S. Marines in Mexico, in Nicaragua. The Cuban Communist Party was created clandestinely in Havana just a year before Fidel Castro was born. Cuba had begun to stir. Castro was born in 1926, and the Mayari region where Fidel grew up featured probably greater American presence and control than any other place in Cuba. The United Fruit Company, a Boston-based corporate giant with operations throughout Latin America, maintained special housing in Mayari for its American and a few Cuban employees. They maintained hospitals and schools, that is, for the children of the sugar-producing elite. They had stores stocked with American foodstuffs. They had a post office and later swimming pools and a polo club, even. In addition to the rural guard, a United States-trained, Cuban Gendarmerie, the company was protected by its own armed police force that assured order and kept out undesirable Cubans. The United Fruit Company also exercised great political power in Cuba, even more than other American companies and banks. The first sizable acquisition of sugar land in Cuba was made by an American investor from Boston named E.F. Atkins in 1882, although the First American-owned sugar mill dates back to 1818. Atkins was followed by the Boston Fruit Company, originally concentrating on bananas, which changed its name to the United Fruit Company in 1898 when it began its massive sugar plantation purchases. United Fruit and the other companies had key Cuban politicians in their pockets, or really even on their payrolls. The Cuban American Sugar Company, founded by a Texas congressman at the turn of the century, was represented on the island by Mario G. Menocal, who served as the U.S.-blessed president of Cuba from 1912 to 1920. The United Fruit Company was saved from the nationalization of one half of its holdings by the revolutionary government of President Ramón Grau San Martín in 1934, when Agriculture Minister Carlos Hevea, at odds with the rest of the ministers, talked Grau out of doing it. Hevea, who later served a brief president's term, conducted the defense of United Fruit as a negotiator between his own government and the United States Embassy in Havana. Until the Revolution, United Fruit was untouchable. Succeeding governments protected it from labor unrest, excessive taxation, or any interference with its privileges. The company also had immense fruit plantation holdings, mainly bananas, in most Central American countries where it likewise was the dominant political force. In 1954, United Fruit worked hand-in-hand with the CIA to overthrow the leftist regime of Colonel Jacobo Arbenz Guzman in Guatemala, after the company's economic domination was challenged by the local government. In Cuba, thousands upon thousands of cane cutters and mill workers live with their families in miserable babios or shacks, on the estates during the four months of the annual zafra, that is the harvest, usually earning less than a dollar a day, sometimes only 40 or 50 cents without food. In the years remaining months, the sinister dead time in Cuba There was simply no work, and the gajiro or peasant families, tried to survive the best they could. This was the social environment that Fidel Castro remembers from his childhood, and it awakened him politically as he matured. When Angel Castro first came to Mayari, there were occasional jobs available on the new railway the United Fruit Company had built between its mills and the Port of Antilla on the Bay of Nipe. And Angel was briefly employed as a laborer, laying down track as one of the many menial tasks he performed to stay alive. He was probably around 25 years old when he decided to start his own business as an itinerant peddler among cane cutters and woodsmen up and down the Mayari. It was beautiful country, the classical Oriente landscape with clusters of tall palm trees rising proudly amid green cane fields and meadows, then deep woods extending far beyond in the direction of the Sierras in the south. Rivers faithfully irrigated the fields. As the war ended and foreign capital poured in, chimneys of the new sugar mills were erected all over Oriente, and they began to punctuate the skyline. More and more, there were cattle grazing in the pastures with guajiros in big straw hats mounted on their tough little horses guarding the herds. Selling lemonade that Angel prepared every morning and transported in small barrels and tankards, well, that was his first mercantile enterprise. With a donkey cart, he toured the fields and the woods of Mayari, serving the lemonade to the thirsty men. With his first tiny profits, he began buying wholesale a variety of merchandise, peddling it from finca to finca in the ranch countryside. Fidel says he remembers hearing that his father then organized a group of local workers whom he paid to cut trees for new sugar-planting fields and for burning wood in the furnaces of the big mills. He apparently had a work contract with an American sugar company. Angel Castro worked incessantly to earn and save as much as possible. Somewhere along the line, he learned how to read and write. Probably around 1910, when he was 35 or so, Angel began leasing land from the United Fruit Company in the Buran area, 36 kilometers southwest of the town of Mayari, putting the proceeds from his sugar sales into the acquisition of parcels of land. Thus, he became a Kalano planting sugarcane for sale to the company's mills, a practice the corporation encouraged because it tied the small farmers closer to it. He employed his first farmhands and gradually became Don Angel Castro, an increasingly affluent landowner in Oriente. About that time, Angel Castro married his first wife, Maria Argota. She is thought to have been an elementary school teacher in the Mayari area, though virtually nothing else is known about her. They had two children, Pedro, Emilio, and Lydia, the latter born in 1915. In 1985, both of them lived in Havana, rather aged and rarely seeing their famous half-brother, but in quiet comfort that was assured by Fidel. Lydia, who eloped as a very young woman to marry an army officer and become widowed, within a few years, devoted the rest of her life to Fidel, helping him immeasurably during his clandestine periods and during the imprisonment and finally in the Sierra War. Pedro Emilio was a minor politician prior to the 1952 Batista coup, and then he reverted to his real interest, Greek and Latin studies. There is something of a mystery about the first Senora de Castro, and about the circumstances of Angel Castro's second marriage. All the published accounts about the Castro family are extremely sketchy. Fidel likes to keep it that way. But they coincide in affirming that Maria Argata de Castro died shortly after her second child was born. Juana Castro, Fidel's younger sister, insists, however, that her father either divorced or simply left Maria. This point is entirely unclear inasmuch as actual divorces in rural Catholic families in Cuba in the 1920s were most uncommon. Juana Castro also says that this first wife lived very long, dying well after the revolution. Angel Castro's second wife, the mother of Fidel and his six sisters and brothers, was Lena Ruz Gonzalez, a woman easily 25 years younger than the Braun landowner. She appears to have been born in the westernmost province of Pinar del Rio, and her daughter Emma once described her as a Cuban for a long time, presumably meaning that her parents were not first-generation immigrants from Spain. Juana says her mother was from the most humble origins, but it's unknown when and why she had come to Oriente. According to most published versions Lena worked as a cook or a maid in the Castro household, while Maria Argata de Castro was still in residence. Fidel said that his maternal grandparents moved 1,000 kilometers in a cart from Pinar del Rio in Oriente at the start of the century, with Lena and their other children. The grandparents were extremely poor, and according to Fidel, Lena's father and his two brothers drove ox carts, Transporting cane from fields to mills. It is unknown what happened to Grandfather Ruse, but Fidel recalls that his maternal grandmother lived about one kilometer from the Baran house and that she had even gone to Havana with Lena after the revolution in 1959. Castro, who has rich memories of his mother, has often told of her being practically illiterate until. As an adult, she taught herself to read and write. Both his mother and his grandmother, he says, were deeply religious, the religiosity coming from some family tradition. Because there were no churches or priests in the Buran region, Fidel's mother's devotions were at home, and during the Sierra War, both women had made endless promises to God and the saints for the lives and safety of. Fidel and Raúl. The day the revolution triumphed, Señora de Castro, her head covered by a black mantilla, knelt at the altar in the Santiago Cathedral to thank God for her son's survival and victory. Castro recalls that when his mother and grandmother told him of the promises and their faith, he listened to them with interest and respect. Although I had a different concept of the world I never discussed these problems with them because I saw the strength, the encouragement, the consolation they derived from their religious sentiments and their beliefs. Castro later remarked in all seriousness about his mother, the fact that we completed our struggle alive must have doubtlessly expanded her faith. Of his father, he says in a peculiarly detached fashion, I saw him more preoccupied with other subjects, with the politics, with the political thing, the daily struggle. Rarely, almost never, I heard him expound on religion. Perhaps he was skeptical in matters of religion. Well, that was my father. It almost seems as if Fidel resented his father for not sharing his mother's religious faith in his own destiny. Some accounts by foreign writers claim that Angel's and Lena's first three offspring, Angela, Ramon, and Fidel, were born out of wedlock during the period when Lena worked as a maid or a cook for the household. All three have chosen, unsurprisingly, not to discuss this allegation publicly. It is entirely possible that the first wife simply decided to walk out and that the family subsequently let her slip into oblivion, although Pedro, Emilio, and Lydia went to live with her somewhere, at least for a time. In any event, Angel Castro and Lina were married in church after Fidel's birth in a ceremony arranged by the priest, Enrique Perez Serrantes, a friend of the groom, who, as bishop many years later, would be instrumental at saving Fidel's life from Batista's soldiers. Angela, Ramon, and Fidel were baptized in church later on with the proper surnames of Castro Ruz. There is nothing to suggest that Fidel's alleged illegitimacy had ever caused him the slightest discomfort or problem in the tolerant Cuban society. At the time of Angel Castro's first marriage, the Baron Finca's two-story hilltop frame house on wooden piles had already been partly built. It was quite large, with most of the bedroom windows facing the Sierras in the south, and the cattle in the dairy barn under the building. Upon Angel's arrival in 1899, the village of Baron had some 530 registered inhabitants, and it was growing rapidly when the Castro children were being born. Maracane was the nearest town of any importance, having both a school and a doctor. All of this territory lay within the confines of the United Fruit Company empire. Castro believes that his father built the house on wooden piles with space underneath for cattle and fowl because it was in the architectural style of well-off landowners in Galicia. Angel Castro, born in a humble one-story Spanish stone house, was eager to enjoy the prosperity that he had earned through his hard work in the new country. Fidel had saved a photograph of the Galicia house, and he shows it to visitors to underscore his family's early poverty. When Castro was a child, the house was expanded to include an office for his father, and later a cow barn was erected some 100 yards from the main building, followed by a small slaughterhouse and a repair shop. In time, Angel Castro built a store and a bakery. Eventually, Castro claims the tiny post office and the small rural school were the only structures in Baran not belonging to his father. Near the house, there was a cockpit where every Sunday during the harvest, cockfights were held. Castro tells that many humble people spent their scarce earnings on betting, and if they lost, nothing was left to them, and if they won, they spent it immediately on rum and fiestas. Manacas, the Castro Finca, became in time a 26,000-acre domain. 1920 of those acres belonged to Don Angel, and the rest was rented permanently, with some 300 families living and working on the property. Many of these people were indigent Haitian cane cutters brought to Cuba across the narrow body of sea from the island of Hispaniola to work the sugarcane fields, the cane was sold by the finca to the United Fruit Company's nearby Miranda Mill. Don Angel also grew fruit, raised cattle, and owned forests in Pinaris de Mijares, where his sawmill processed lumber for sale in big volume. A small nickel mine belonged to him as well. The Bay of Nipe zone is very rich in nickel and other minerals. Angel Castro played with gusto the role of the landed Spanish-Cuban patriarch. An imposing figure, almost six feet tall, in a wide-brimmed hat covering his completely shaved head. Either his wife or one of the daughters would use a hand clipper to keep his head hairless and shiny. Until the age of 40, he had a beard, and then he shaved that off too. Don Angel was an incredibly hard worker who, even as a rich man, rose at dawn every day to take breakfast personally to cane cutters and planters in his fields. On the eves of Christmas and other major holidays, he would sit at an outdoor table in front of the warehouse abutting the main residence to distribute vouchers to the workers for feast food as presents from the master. Despite this beneficent aspect of Don Angel, The Castro children also remember him as a man of an extraordinary violent temperament, given to unpredictable explosions, traits he passed on in full to his son, Fidel. Thank you for listening to Bonus Episode 134 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.